rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. First off, I'm not even going to lie. I've been waiting for this episode for quite a while. Yeah, this is going to be a good one. We get to actually dive into some semi-local boys this time. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, we've been wanting to talk about these guys for so long. And, of course, it's Nirvana. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we're doing Nirvana, obviously. We, we've skirted the whole season. We're, we're not even doing the 60s anymore. Yeah, we're out of the 60s, out of the 70s. Straight. No, just just kidding. Please, I hope you didn't turn that off. Yeah, that please heat. settle down. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the Sonics. <laughs> so, I mean, really, if you want to talk about these guys, though, they're really like, you know, a huge garage rock band, like like the garagiest of garage the garagiest. rock. Bands. But really, they helped start the punk rock sound. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I don't know. We were talking about this just while we were like, I don't know, like getting prepped here. Their first song and their first album is their best work, and it's so interesting. Like, they, yeah, they're such a front-loaded band that did like that changed so much without actually ever getting any sort of like the recognition they really deserved. Oh, they definitely did not. Oh yeah, they 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 surely didn't. And it's gonna be nice to really like get into that because I honestly don't know much of their backstory, which is you know just another symptom of them not getting the credit that they deserve. Because I have no idea even these guys' names. So. Uh, <clears throat> no birthdays today oh fuck i love birthdays though. i know well there were so many band changes at the beginning that oh, okay we got another one of those like doo-wop setups huh yeah well they were trying to find the right people for the right sound come <laughs> yeah. on now yeah of course i know i've heard it before but i guess really we should first talk about garage rock because if you haven't heard the name why are you listening to this podcast? Oh, my God. No. <laughs> <laughs> Don't alienate the people. Turn Ian. this off right now. <laughs> no, but it's like a it's like an early form of a, of like a grungy punk scene. Like, right. Well, and it was kind of the name given to performers who were kind of looked at as like young and amateurish and, you know, would rehearse in the family's garage. Yeah, exactly. Well, I always thought like, yeah, the garage rock sound was supposed to be like early in your career. Which is really ironic well, it, with it what was, we just talked about. Right. Well, it was kind of uh, meant as, you know, a derogatory term. Oh, that's a garage rock band. And, you, you know, being yeah, like... not professional is what it says. <laughs> you know, kind of like punk rock took the punk name where punk was always like, like you know... You damn punks. Yeah, exactly. It was a bad thing. <laughs> yep. I, that makes sense, actually. But in all honesty, like, garage rock owes a huge thanks to surf rock. You know, mainly instrumental, guitar-driven music. With the, with a light, in, like, instances of uh, the kind of tone-driven uh, yeah. like pedals and things that they would use. Right. Well, this there wasn't a super amount of pedals, but there was definitely distortion. Or I guess, yeah, they used the distortion on the amp, and I'm, I'm not sure actually how you even produce distortion in that early of era. A lot of times, the earliest stuff would be just overdriving the tubes, like uh, turning the amp up way too loud. Yeah. But yeah, so surf would, you know, basically be popular from like, like its biggest popularity be like 62 to 64. You know, we talked about Link Ray, you know, and how he helped surf. You know, we haven't talked about Dick Dale or anything, but you know, like most those of were you, like most the, of you know, at least one Dick Dale song. Yeah. It, as we've talked about before, yeah. you know, Pulp Fiction intro. Yep. Anybody? Anybody? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, um, they were kind of like the early people to do it, and then you know there'd be a bunch, there'd be a whole bunch of bands that would come out after that. Yeah, well, I mean, so they are they kind of the originators of the sound. Yeah. Oh hell yeah! Like I, I'm really curious how you come up with that sound. Like I want to be kind of surfy, but also just make all of our stuff sound like it's broken, and I want to be like, ah, 
Well, the broken part probably comes more from Link Ray, and the surfier part probably comes from Dick Dale. Yeah. Because he, he used all those, like, Eastern European scales that was taught to him by his family. Oh, yeah. And you, you know me. I'm a huge fan of Eastern European and Gypsy scales. <laughs> like, that's that's honestly a big a big base of my music style, so... We, we, we got to get off this topic, or now I'm just going to say, dude, check out Dick Dale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, we're putting Dick Dale on a, on, on a later season, boys. Boop, 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 yeah, yeah, boop. Into the random machine. <laughs> you know, and the performances weren't professional by any stretch of the imagination. You know, they just got up and played and played wild. Yeah, they were kind of, you know, garagey, I guess. Their lyrical theme would... You know, be a lot about like high school life and, you know, lying girls and the trauma about trying to pick up girls who didn't want them and shit like that. You yeah. Know? <laughs> but they, it, they were good enough writers to where it didn't come off as like, you know, kitschy, I guess. No, I mean, maybe not for back in the day, but there's definitely some kitschiness to it now. You yeah. Know? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, there, there definitely is now. I mean, yeah, I guess I was trying to think of like from their perspective because they're very much like raw and out there for their era. Well, and that's it. You know, they were way more aggressive than any other band out there at the time. Or you can just talk about the song Louie Louie that, like, every garage band covered ever in existence. Yeah, is that one of their originals? No, uh, I don't remember who did the original, but the Kingsmen were the ones who made it big. And because some of the lyrics were, like, you weren't able to figure out exactly what he was saying, they got watched by the FBI and shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it was considered, like, Kind of a dangerous music. It was oh, just, shit. I know. Dangerous music because he wasn't completely audible. <laughs> and you mentioned guitar pedals. Like, a main characteristic of garage rock, you know, was distorted guitars through a fuzz box, you know, which is like the early distortion stuff. Oh, okay. Because yeah, was, I don't even, uh, my, like, guitar history is not that good. Was pedals even the thing back then? Or was that kind of like a later in the 70s sort of thing? It was, but, like, Pedals kind of, like, there weren't that many, especially not like there are now, but yeah, so it goes through various specific. forms of, like, onboard distortion, you know, like, on the amp or, you know, pedal and stuff. But it was just, you know, mainly, like, a way to turn up the uh, the output so it'll overdrive your tubes even more, you know. Yeah, so if anything, it was just another way to manipulate manipulate your amp into breaking yeah. itself in a cool way. You don't you don't got to uh, you know slash your cones with a razor anymore. You know, all of blood belly style. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, if you want distortion, you, you just turn it up so loud that it breaks itself. There you go. There's distorted sound. Well, and even though like garage rock was a term, it was kind of a catch all for a bunch of bands from various different sounds that you know could have been put into multiple different genres if you think about it so was it just like the garage rock like the amateur level that kind of uh, looped them all together yeah it was kind of a oh well that's just garage rock you know kind of attitude towards it and you know kind of just because the 60s is where we get our first rock stars so i could definitely see where people are going to start being like oh you're just a normal musician you're not Dun, 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 mega musician. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're not Elvis on Quaalude sitting on his toilet musician. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're not. You're nothing like I've seen, like the things that I like here in 1960-whatever. Yeah. I really do think that that's where a lot of the snootiness comes from because it, it really did derive from a derogatory term for these bands, too. Yeah, and I mean, they embraced it just the same way that punk did, like we already talked about. Well, I, I just think punk actually sounds a lot cooler than garage rock. <laughs> well, and a lot of the sounds were actually very regional, you know, and it was all over the country, like California, Texas, but the Pacific Northwest specifically, like you're talking like Washington, Oregon, Idaho, really had like a lot of bands that came out from this area. Because we already knew that we liked the grungy sound. They just didn't figure out what grunge was yet. Fucking rain. <laughs> uh. <laughs> we like it when it goes <laughs> I'm so depressed because I haven't seen the sun in eight months. <laughs> <laughs> We're actually not like that, ladies and gentlemen. I hate the sun. <laughs> well, I take vitamin D, so I'm not like that anymore. <laughs> but I do play in a metal band, so yeah, I wonder... I mean, you do got to take some some vitamin D, especially when you get to be an old, crickly old man like us. 
Well, and speaking specifically of the Northwest scenes, there's one in particular that we are kind of talking about here, and that's Tacoma, Washington. The aroma of Tacoma. <laughs> that's an actual regional thing that we say. Because, or Tacompton. <laughs> yeah, or Tacompton, because honestly, Tacoma smells really weird, and you really don't want to go to a lot of places there. Uh, some of the places are not bad, and like honestly, some of the people are really, really cool, and they have some really cool scenes later, too. Well, and Tacoma was the home of basically, I guess you'd call it a spirited teen dance scene in the late 50s. And this scene would really produce like three like bands that really like did quite well at the time. The Whalers, who would have like the hit called Tall Cool One, Little Bill and the Blue Notes, which I actually haven't heard of before, but that's a pretty cool name. It is. And they came out with a song called I Love an Angel pretty soft eh, a little tame yeah and then you know you got the ventures walk don't run <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you guys haven't heard of the ventures where uh, let's put that in the beat boop boop machine too because the ventures boop, are boop, fucking boop, boop, boop. awesome <laughs> but yeah uh all of these songs would become international hits so you know a few bands in the tacoma area from the late 50s having international hits you know that's like a big deal yeah, you know, that, that, is coming pretty, up. that is a seriously big deal, especially because Tacoma is not really like, if you're not from the Northwest, Tacoma is not a name that you typically know about. Well, and especially like there wasn't really like a music scene. You know, you didn't have like the studios like you would say in California or New York or Atlanta, you know, Chicago, those kind of places. I guess that it's so interesting now that I really think about it because Tacoma also had a huge like like the folk punk scene like all the the gutter folk kids and all that like they they're very similar to kind of like that kind of style and identity too you know very rough very not professional styled right Tacoma and Olympia with that fo- uh, with that folk punk scene was it was big around there yeah it, I mean at least for a few years it was there's a there's a couple of notable uh, bands that actually produce some seriously good music but you know most of them are not really playing music anymore <laughs> well what do you say we get to our first do check out this song huh I guess we should talk about the Sonics not just garage rock in general huh well please lay it on me Monsieur Ian so we got the Whalers tall cool one. Little Bill on the Blue Notes, I Love an Angel, and I can't leave this fucking song off. The Ventures, Walk, Don't Run, because that song rules. Yes, it absolutely does. Where are the Ventures from? Are they from Tacoma, too? Yeah, they're from Tacoma. Oh, shit, that's way cooler. We shouldn't have done the Sonics. We should have done the Ventures. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I I, I love the Sonics more. Well, and I I think think all of them live in California now who's still alive. So, (laughs) Well, of course, because they're fucking surf rockers. Of course, they moved to California. Yeah, they're probably more appreciated over there anyway. You have to be way more hardcore to surf in Washington. People actually do it, but you have to go out there in like a like a scuba like dry suit while you're doing it. Oh, dude, actually, when I was on my trip, we were riding around the Olympic Peninsula on a motorcycle, mind you guys, anybody listening. It's terrible. That's, uh, <laughs> oh, you're, it, it sounds like it's really cool, but the Olympic Peninsula this time of year is literally shits just, oh, yeah, this just is, t- buckets of water. This four-day trip didn't get above 45. Yeah, it's, <laughs> It actually didn't rain that much, which I was really happy about. Well, then you got really lucky. But it was, I want to say, 42 or 43 degrees, and there were some guys out on the water surfing. Oh, my God. Yeah, those dudes are <laughs> fucking crazy. <laughs> so, those are so those are some serious... Uh, what would you call them, surfies? Yeah. <laughs> Surfer boys, I guess. I guess. Don't call them surfies. Surfies? I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure if you're like, hey, it's a bunch of surfies, they'd be like, what the fuck? I mean, what, would they be surf kids? I don't know, because you got skater kids. I don't know. They're probably surfers. Uh, that's lame. <laughs> I'm sure that they don't think it's lame. I mean, yeah, I think pretty sure you're just a surfer, right? A surf. I smith. guess so. I guess a surf smith. I like that one. <laughs> and so let's get back to what we're talking about here. <laughs> All this activity with these bands getting hits and from the Tacoma area, you know, was obviously quite thrilling for the teens in the area. Yeah, duh. One teen in particular. Andy Paripa, P-A-R-Y-P-A. Okay. He first saw the Whalers perform at the Tacoma News Tribune Paperboy Banquet. (laughs) (laughs) All right. As, you know, like 
All big shows are at, right? Well, yeah, because this is, <laughs> we've made the jokes before, but in the 60s, they're still doing the, like, teen dances locally, like, all the time, so. Yeah. That's probably what that is. It's just, you know, <laughs> once again, they just corporately apply a name to it. In 1960, the Whalers would actually end up recording their own version of Louie Louie, which would end up becoming a number one regional smash hit when released as a, a debut 45 for the band's very own record company, Etiquette Records. Oh, shit, they're all self-published too, huh? Yep. That's cool. Well, at least from here on out, the Whalers are all self-published. Yeah. Also in 1960, Andy's younger twin brothers, Larry, who would end up playing guitar, and Jerry, who would play saxophone, began jamming on Louie Louie in their Southside home with a couple of junior high pals on the weekends. Oh, snap. This is how you make a band, boys. This is how it starts. And so the band was formed by teenage guitarist Larry Paripa, with the encouragement of his music-loving parents. Hell yes. Once again, encouraging parents fucking rock. Yeah. Parents always encourage your kids to play music. Yeah, exactly. That way, you never know. They're, they might be a regional hit and play some garage rock that could be a derogatory term for music. <laughs> Actually, there's a band called Minutemen, and the guitarist's mother would let them play at her house, and one parent asked her one time, why do you let your kids go down in the basement and play? And she goes, well, I know where my kids are. Do you? Oh, clot. <laughs> Take right that. In your face. <laughs> but maybe that's another band we got to add to the beep boop machine. <laughs> Who's that? The Minutemen. Oh, yeah. No, the Minutemen are pretty cool. Actually. Yeah. Boop, boop, boop. Stuff them in there. I mean, we've got so many bands in that fucking <laughs> list now. And so the earliest lineup would have. Larry playing guitar, drummer Mitch Jaber, guitarist Stuart Turner, and Jerry, Larry's brother, playing saxophone, but only briefly. Apparently, he didn't like it that much. And occasionally, their mother would fill in on bass at rehearsals. Aw, <laughs> mom played bass. <laughs> Which is really funny thinking about this music. Like, could you imagine? Because they got some strong bass lines. Like, it's not something you're just following along with. Like... Cause if just think of like the like witch in general like bum 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 like do 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 mom's yeah. out there just rocking. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> well, they didn't have the witch yet. They were only doing covers at this point. Yeah, I guess. But Louis Louis is still pretty uh, still pretty driving bass. Right. Well, and in 1961, Andy would actually end up becoming the older brother would actually end up becoming the bass player. And they'd get a new saxophone player named Tony Maven. Tony Maven. They really want a saxophone, huh? Oh, yeah. Well, I could see, like, adding a saxophone if you have a saxophonist that you like and want them in the band. But I don't, I I just, it's, like, confusing to have, like, I'm a three-piece rock band plus saxophone. Well, at the time, especially with the pedal technology, I imagine it's because it was the best instrument to still do solos with. You know, even though technology had progressed. It does have you know, some it, serious distortion style horn, yeah. too. It mixes with distortion very well. You know, and then they'd go through several more band changes in 63. And then end up finding a drummer named Bob Bennett, who used to play in a band called The Searchers. I don't think it's the famous one. And then they'd find a keyboardist named Jerry Rossley and sax player Rob Lind. And bam! We have a band. The Sonics. And one time they were asked to perform at a schoolmate's birthday party, and they finally, and then they found themselves in need of a name that could be printed on the invitation card. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, wait, we don't even have a name. And at the time, there had been a rash of sonic booms over their neighborhood, which was near the U.S. Air Force Base McCord. You know, the Lewis McCord base that, yeah. that's still there. Anybody who doesn't know the area. And so... Sonics. That's fucking cool. Uh, that's actually a really cool origin. What better name to come up with, really? Yeah, I mean, you really got to, if you find inspiration from stuff around you and have something that's kind of like based on a moment or based on like an event or, or like a location, it's usually a really good band name. And so, you know, they'd play songs like Louie Louie, Tall Cool One, Walk Don't Run. You know, a lot of instrumentals were in there. They'd play a song called Honky Tonk, you know, just all covers, really. Yeah. As you usually do when you're like a really early band. But the well-known lineup was in place, and now the Sonics are uh, booming. Yeah. They're, they're <laughs> <laughs> I fucking hate you, Ian. 
I hope you die. <laughs> that one came right off the top of the old noggin there. <laughs> yeah, I know. And that's why it smells weird in here. And at one point, the band would cut a four-song demo tape in Andy and Larry's basement. You know, the Paripa brothers. I just don't like their last name, so I don't want to keep saying it. <laughs> so we'll just call them Andy and Larry. Reminds me of that PlayStation game, Parappa the Rappa. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Oh, continue. my God, that fucking game. <laughs> that game is awesome. And the demo was basically an effort to get better gigs, right? And it would never really get released until 1999 called the House Party EP. So it took years for this one to come out. Oh, wow. So this is this was mainly like I, I, we had one of these, like the the, yeah. the CDs you can hand out to the venues and be like, yo, it's like three minutes of what we sound like. Right. Please, please give us five dollars to play. Here. <laughs> <laughs> but it must have worked because by 1964, the Sonics began playing larger venues in the Tacoma area, like the Tacoma Armory. Maybe that's a venue or a slash gun store. I don't know. i'm sure it's a venue i hope (laughs) the tacoma sports arena and you know various other like teen clubs like the gaslight and the red carpet i noticed you don't mention the tacoma dome i don't know was that even built yet i don't think so (laughs) it's like it's like a regionally popular thing it's where like dirt bike races and wwe like wrestling things and you can go see like iron maiden and slipknot play yeah and then and then our uh, AAA baseball team, what are they, the Rainiers, yeah, they, play there? Yeah, the, yeah, the Rainiers <laughs> play there. Now, are they named after the mountain or the beer? <laughs> and, and really, to show you how old this dome is, there the big regional thing uh, in the 90s was that there was panels falling off the ceiling during a couple of the uh, events. You're thinking of the King Dome. No, because the... the Tacoma Dome had stuff fall too. I thought, did it. Yeah, I thought so. Mm, I thought. See, I thought that's why they got rid of the Kingdom. Well, I mean, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> they were both made out of concrete, and th- they were old as fuck. Actually, the Tacoma Dome's still there. So yeah, well, the Tacoma Dome's still there, but they've revamped it so many times. I'm sure that that it's a whole new dome at this point. Probably. I mentioned Iron Maiden and Slipknot because I may have seen them there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very specific, very specific example that he gives here. Yes, I once listened to Slipknot in high school. Leave me alone. <laughs> Stop crying, Ian. You know, they would eventually work their way up to bigger shows and, you know, just keep playing and playing and playing. But they would start writing original songs of their own, and Andy would end up approaching the Whalers bassist Buck Ormsby to ask if Etiquette might consider signing them to a deal. Oh, shit. And so Ormsby would descend into the Bennett's basement and heard the band's ferocious original, The Witch. Whoa! It's such a good song, guys. Like, <laughs> it on, really is. Oh, we talked about it earlier, but honestly, if you're only going to listen to one fucking song from this whole thing, please make it this song. This song rocks so it's hard. It's so good. And they were signed to Etiquette because of that one song. So, <laughs> I mean, that's how much power that song had. Holy shit, that's awesome. You know... But The Witch was not any Beatles song or Beach Boys song. It wasn't considered a commercially viable tune. No, because it was punk rock before punk rock existed. But there was so much power to it, they had to get signed, right? And so in July 1964, Ormsby booked some time with engineer Lyle Thompson, the proprietor of one of Seattle's pioneering record stations, Commercial Productions, a facility that had mainly cut cheerful pop radio jingles and light jazz sessions. Commercial was a less than ideal spot to try and capture the sonic sound. Oh, <laughs> that's rough. <laughs> After hours and hours of testy tussling with Thompson in an effort to get him to quit trying to refine their sound and ignoring the redlining of the VU meters on his console, two tunes came out of this recording. <laughs> and that would be The Witch and Little Richard's Keep On Knocking. But this is the iconic recording of The Witch, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so fuck it. I don't give a shit how angry that guy was. He recorded one of the greater songs of, of the this era, really. I think it was recorded despite him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, you just shut up and sit there. We're going to make the magic. And these two songs would be released by Etiquette in October. And the 45 was met with a wall of resistance by the radio industry. The DJs and radio programmers who worked for regional giants KJR and KOL 
collectively figured that the label and band were nuts for thinking that anyone would air such an unusually harsh and aggressive song whose barbaric intensity was truly not compatible with top 40 radio aesthetics. That means that they were too old. Basically. Yeah. If it's too loud, you're too old, ladies and gentlemen. And that this is from somebody That is who, a real saying. That, yeah. It is true. And that is, it, it, this is from somebody who is now too old. Because it has been too loud for me multiple times. And I'm like, I want to be mad at this. And I have to be like, wait, wait. No, I just need to just not be here. Like, <laughs> I, I need to stop judging. I'm yeah. turning into my parents. Yeah, exactly. That's, and, that's really, I mean, if everybody's taken one lesson from this whole episode, is no matter what, like, just don't judge other people's sounds. Like, if you don't like it, step away. But <laughs> some- I think that's become a theme through these last couple of seasons now. Yeah, exactly. You got to and- appreciate everything. We, I mean, I guess it's a theme on this episode or this show because you and I love like every, <laughs> <laughs> every type of music. So let's get to our first Sonics. Dude, check out the song, huh? Oh, please, God, hit me with it. The it's big- going to be The Witch and <sighs> Keep On Knocking. Yes, both amazing songs, uh, and not to downplay Keep On Knocking, but holy shit, once again, if you only listen to one song, The Witch, The Witch, it's so good. Oh, but first yeah, song you gotta li- first you got to listen to The Witch, but their version of Keep On Knocking is so, it's good. It's really good. It's really good. I didn't good. even know Little Richard did it for years, and then when I heard it, I was like, Oh, it, I mean, it's not quite as aggressive as I thought it would be. Well, duh, yeah, because it's Little Richard, bro. I mean, he's still saying pretty aggressively for the 50s. Yeah, but he was also, like, you know, doing cross-dressing and stuff. Which is pretty aggressive for the 50s. I guess that's a good point, yeah. Aggressive, <laughs> aggressively feminine. He's, as this man cross-dresses and sings semi-punk music. I mean, let's be honest. The it's, 50s weren't exactly the most accepting times of people. Yeah, they sure they sure were not okay with all of that, that's for sure. I mean, he, we covered this in Little Richard's episode. He wasn't even accepting of himself at times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He only liked himself half the time. How is anyone else going to like him? And so it was in late October that Seattle's tiny KTW gave the witch a little airtime, and the response was amazing. Amped up teens phoning in support, and retail sales of the 45 skyrocketed overnight. Oh, shit. This isn't like that magical era where radio play could literally do that overnight. Yeah, you know, it like, could really, it could literally make your band. Yeah, it's it's... Much like, you know, the internet kind of does the same thing where it gives so much accessibility to where if something's like legendarily good, it will find an audience and grow. Well, not necessarily legendarily good, but just something that captures the attention of teens at the time. Yeah, or or it captures the attention of any ISA group, really. It doesn't doesn't matter what what group it is, but it's just, it's such an interesting time in in this particular era that the radio was the modus for that because it really wasn't. For very long before that and it won't be long after that before the radio gets like kind of you know phased out well the radio didn't really get phased out till the night until like the mid to late 90s i would say well of course but i'm still saying that's like that's only a 60 year period of really like radio dominance that's a fair point but like you also got to understand this was a regional radio station so they weren't you know like famous by any means it's just that they could play sold out shows locally now yeah exactly well in in that sort of reputation any sort of growth in the sales of a record means it'll be sold farther so if you're if you're a local band and locally you sell a lot of music that just means you'll sell locally in a larger area soon the bigger radio station in the area kol would relent and start airing the song kjr however continued to refrain from playing it. KGR is still a radio station today, too. <laughs> Program director Pat O'Day. <laughs> God damn, these Pats are always assholes. What did the Pat do this time? Please tell me you recognize the name Pat O'Day. No, I don't. He's the guy who was like, diabetes. Oh, it's the diabetes guy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. It's the Beatus dude. <laughs> diabetes. <laughs> what did he say? He insisted that Ormsby bring him physical proof, printed play charts from other stations before he'd even try the song on his station. He was concerned that the witch would offend KJR's main daytime listener demographic, housewives. Oh, no, not housewives. (laughs) Hey, y'all know housewives are dirty as fuck, right? No. Oh, no, is that not like a thing that people know? 
No, I didn't know that. <laughs> Please teach me more, Pat. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm a housewife, so. <laughs> you are dirty as fuck. <laughs> no, I just mean, you know, housewives are actually generally pretty uh, accepting of wider types of media. Like, you know, it's it's usually the, uh, the uptight husbands that are actually less likely to listen to a wider amount of things where... You know, I, I can only imagine there was a whole lot of situations where, you know, the wives are listening to suspect radio stations while, <laughs> while the husband's at work. <laughs> and talking to suspect mailmen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ian, this is getting a little, uh, little mailman-ish, if you know let what me, I mean. Let, let me cool this uh, place down a little bit, huh? <laughs> Would you like some lemonade? <laughs> My All right, we've gotten way <laughs> off track here. Way, way off track. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sonics fans would not let up their pressure on the station, and one week after the band played a homecoming dance at Tacoma's Curtis High School, KJR's Dick Curtis hosted a, it says sock hop. I don't know what a sock hop is, but... <laughs> you don't know what a sock hop is? Uh-uh. It's where they all like took their shoes off and danced. Oh, okay. He hosted a sock hop. That makes more sense, actually. So he hosted a sock hop there, and some rabid Sonics fans actually brought along their own Sonics 45s and leaned on the DJ to spin the tune. Hell yeah. Repeatedly. (laughs) (laughs) That's fucking awesome. Having mentioned the wild response of the song, Curtis would end up mentioning it to his boss, Diabetes Man. (laughs) So it's really that dude. Yeah. Oh, my God. I know I do. That guy had a history. Yeah, no, he used to be like a radio DJ and uh, ran a radio station. And oh, my God. He did God. all these crazy music stuff for the area. And it's Beatus. just. <laughs> Dude, that's the best. Thank you for bringing me that. <laughs> I, I, if you guys have no idea what we're talking about, just Google Pat O'Day diabetes commercial. <laughs> or beat <is. laughs> and so yeah he mentioned it to his boss and on halloween night in 1964 the witch got its first airplay on kjr hell yeah but it would take two more months before pat o'day would allow it to be added to the station's playlist and even then only under certain unpublicized conditions (laughs) (laughs) yeah unpublicized that means we'll decide where we're gonna play it you don't even get to know guys you shut up well and this was like the big station at the time so this was like a big deal you're like you're like regional stars when you get on that they're still the radio station nowadays are they still a radio station nowadays kjrfm Huh, I don't listen to the radio anymore oh no i mean i don't either but i just they were last time i was you know listening to the radio they were still a thing and on Christmas Day, 1964, when The Witch debuted at the number 26 slot on KJR's Fab 50, a ranking that would normally allow a song to be in frequent rotation at all hours of the day, <laughs> KJR mandated that the raucous tune couldn't be aired until after 3 o'clock when the kids were out of school and the mothers were presumably too busy to be focused on the family radio. <laughs> Holy shit. I mean, oh, my God. <laughs> Just make sure the housewives don't hear this. It's because it's the witch, right? Because it's about yeah. like a woman yeah. being bad. Because <laughs> she's a witch. Yeah, Could you imagine his mom rocking that song? <laughs> I, I still just, like, I'm sure it didn't happen. I, I know those are two different events, but I just to keep it imagine like his mom, like in her little schmock, rocking the bass. Bum, 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 bum. Do, 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 do. And, you know, this 45 would sell 29,000 copies in the SeaTac market. If you don't know the region, that's the Seattle-Tacoma market. Pretty much, you know, like three counties. Yeah, that's also <laughs> where our international airport is, so, you know, SeaTac. I always wondered what the name was until, like, recently when I learned out that it was just Seattle-Tacoma, which is like, that actually makes way too much fucking sense. <laughs> I know, especially for the area, too. <laughs> How did I not really get that? Because it's, like, 50% between Seattle and Tacoma. Like, <laughs> I'm passing Pat one duh point right there. Yeah, yay! <laughs> I get a dunce hat cap. <laughs> Sit in the corner while I do this podcast for the rest of the evening. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm transmitting from the corner. 
And so, even though the song was so popular, KJR would allegedly manipulate their weekly Fab 50 charts as to limit the hit to a peak position of number two. <laughs> so even though it was number one, they just yeah. would refuse to give it number one? Yeah, because number one would mean that they would have to play it any time of the day or night. Oh, my God. Why <laughs> would they stop it, though? It's a great song. I, they're such bitches. Fucking beat us, man. <laughs> And in 1965, it dawned on Etiquette, you know, the recording company, that such a high retail sale, suddenly they owed a sizable royalty payment to the owners of the, the flip side tune, Keep a Knockin'. Oh, no. <laughs> they didn't realize that, like, they did a whole bunch of covers all the time. Yeah, and it just kept getting sold and sold and sold and sold. So, I mean, if this kept happening, they would owe money. And so this caused them to take the band into the studio again for a rush session to cut another original composition as a new substitute for the B side of the disc. This time, Ormsby took them into Seattle's Audio Recording Inc., where they began working with sound engineer Kearney Barton, who recalled that, and I quote, they came in on a Sunday afternoon, 45 minutes later, we had Psycho down, and that was their second hit. Hell yeah. And so, yeah, that's the it's song. A, another rec- really good song. Yeah, too. another really good song. That's fucking awesome. That replaced the B side for the for which. Yep. Or no, yeah. yeah, the B side for which. Yeah, yep. which was keeping knocking. Yep. This would give them another regional hit. Hell yeah, that's fucking awesome. And so next, do check out the song. Of course, is Psycho. Hell yeah, and check it out. Double check it out. I mean, I, like I said, if you you only check out one, check out The Witch. But if you check out more, check out Psycho right after The Witch. Oh, God. Psycho's so good. Don't check out just one. Check out Psycho and The Witch. No, I mean, really check out everything. But, you know, I have to, I have to show my favorites. <laughs> Clearly, we know what your favorite is. It's The Witch. Guys. <laughs> In case you didn't catch that the first seven times. Well, and I haven't mentioned this yet in this podcast, but... One of my old, old bands, like one of my original rock bands, we did several covers of Witch songs. Hell yeah. Throughout different sets. Like, we actually did a cover of The Witch for, like, probably, like, the first three or four months, and then we would switch to a different song, which I'll get to later, but... Fuck yeah. I mean, I I do remember you playing Have Love Will Travel. Well, that was the song I was talking about. I was going to mention it later. Oh, my God. Ruining the surprise. Uh, uh That ruins everything. Because I remembered a thing. I'm sorry. How dare you? You and your stupid memory. Well, these songs would actually start getting scattered to different markets, too, including Vancouver, B.C., San Jose, Pittsburgh, Orlando, Cleveland. Oh, shit. So they started making the jump. Yeah, so they were starting to get some other... You know, play, which is awesome. I mean, that's what you need, right? That's the first step. And so, of course, months later, they decided to actually make a full-length album. And there would be a lot of originals on there. And this would be their debut album for Etiquette. Here are the Sonics. Which is a legendarily good album. Like I said, this is their first real album. Yeah, this is their first full-length, like, real, like, both sides, multiple songs, you know, not a 45. Yeah, and it's it's so good. It really is. Like, this actually has Witch on it as the first song. So, like like I said, first album, first song, they knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah, they would do a version of the song we've already mentioned, Have Love, Will Travel, which was actually a song written by Richard Berry, who wrote and performed the original classic hit, Louie Louie. Oh. So, there's a little music history fact for you. They would do the song Boss Hoss, which was about Andy's brand new Ford Mustang. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. You know, and then we got the song Strychnine, like... That's a, that's another really, really, really good jam. Oh, man. If there's only three you're going to listen to in this episode. <laughs> Put Strychnine on the list, dude. Absolutely. And I agree. If you don't know what Strychnine is, it's poison. Yeah, it's And this poison. song's about drinking Strychnine. <laughs> that, that you will willingly drink Strychnine because yeah. they rock so much is essentially what the, the metaphor is. And they would also have a song on there called Walkin' the Dog, which I'm not really sure what the song's about, but it's a kick-ass song. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I immediately think there must be a nefarious a nefarious meaning behind it, but, you know, you never know. Well, with the slang of the day, and I think the original version of that song came out in the 50s, so, you know, maybe walking the dog is 50s slang term for... 
BDSM back then. Whoa, wow. <laughs> you jumped straight to BDSM. I don't know. I wasn't going to levy, to levy any of my assumptions. I was going to most go for like, you know, some masturbation stuff. But uh, <laughs> I, I guess we're going straight for straight for leather and whips let's go, with Ian. Let's go for the dirty stuff on we, this podcast. Yeah, we know what Ian likes. <laughs> Unfortunately, I know that Ian's girlfriend listens to this podcast every week. So. Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, whips she's and gonna cha- give me a look. Yeah, whips and chains for this one right here. She's gonna say, "Why haven't we done that in a while?" <laughs> she never said anything about whips. In 1965, along with the album, they would also release a 45 only track called "The Hustler," and then also would become an instant local classic. Hell yeah. Because she's the hustler. Hustler. I think it's because he's the hustler. Well, anyway. He's a hustler. He's a hustler, yeah. Because yeah. he's the one who hustles all the chicks. Yeah. Oh, Got it. Sense. Yeah. That makes sense. That yep. makes sense. I get it. I get it. I get it. I'm following. And so we need another dude check out this song because we, we mentioned a lot of dude, songs. Yep. All the dude check outs. So we got Have Love Will Travel, Boss Hoss. Yeah. We got Boss Hoss. We got Strychnine, Walking the Dog. And we got the hustler. Oh, all so fucking good. They're, these are these are the jams. If like, if you only listen to I don't know seven or eight or whatever song, just, at, just but, listen to this album. <laughs> just listen to the whole album. You only need to listen to one album. Listen to this one. <laughs> and so by late 1965, the Sonics discs were doing so well that Etiquette figured it was already time, you know, to do another album. Hell yeah. This time they would settle in a nearby studio, Tacoma's tiny country and western oriented Wiley Griffith studio. Oh my God. <laughs> where they found themselves working with some good old boy engineers who didn't quite understand the Sonics. Oh my God. Why can't they just get an engineer who understands their sound? The problem is, is it's the area. I mean, yeah. you got to think about it. Like at the time, there was nothing for anything like them. Washington doesn't get a lot of uh, credit for it, but the, the there's mountains that just that like divide the whole state in half. And oh yeah, we have a serious like high amount of good old boys that live on the other side of the state. They're like, oh yeah, you get away from the sound and go over the mountains. It's all farmland. Yeah, it's all farms. It's all you know like pickup trucks and you know it's. It, Exactly great. I, <laughs> Funny you mentioned that. I have a cousin who lives over there. Pickup trucks. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's a nice truck. And he goes, oh, it's a pickup. It's a pickup truck. <laughs> it's not a truck. It's a pickup truck. <laughs> As opposed I was like, to what? what? <laughs> I know. He's like. As opposed to a put-down truck? <laughs> and then and then he looked at his buddies and goes, City boys. I'm like, fuck you, dude. <laughs> City boys. It's a pickup. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, you ain't never seen one? I should I should have said, oh, I mean, sorry, man. It's a good pick-em-up truck. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Holy shit, Death Row. I ain't never seen one with four wheels. <laughs> oh, my God. They must be rich. It's got four wheels. <laughs> I used to live in East Washington for a while, and uh, it's 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 not quite that bad. We are playing up a little bit. But, uh, <laughs> My cousin did. That is a real story, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, that is a real story. <laughs> All right, let's get back to what we're talking about. <laughs> and those good old boy engineers probably weren't too happy about the fact that they started tearing down their egg carton soundproofing from the room's walls. So they, so they can create a more edgy ambience. <laughs> this isn't going to do. Get this off the walls. <laughs> okay, that's that's fucked up, dude. You just don't go in somebody else's studio and start taking their soundproofing down. That's fucking... That's punk rock. That that's is what legendary. That is. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that right there is legendary. No, no, no. We need more uh, reverb, sir. We're going to need a whole, whole lot more. Uh, if we could just get it to just, you know... Reverb right through the mic. Can we get some squeal? <laughs> uh, the room sounds way too soft. We need it to sound, you know, like our amps are dying. Yeah. So could you make it sound like a garage in here? Like if you had like concrete floors and like. <laughs> Can we just add some tinny doors to the room? <laughs> Let's just bring that door in here. And so, of course, the band would emerge with their next album that was issued in February 1966 
called The Sonic's Boom. Another amazing fucking album. Oh, yeah. And this songs would have like Cinderella, He's Waiting, Shot Down. I don't think this one's as good, but these three songs are fucking hitters, man. Yeah, they are just just seriously good songs. I wouldn't say this album quite hits the way the... Uh, the the hero or uh, hero of the Sonics album, but it's it comes to that point like we talked about earlier. Like garage rock is really all about your early career because it has to have that I don't know like non musical inspiration. The more you play music constantly, the less you're inspired by things that are not music. Does that make sense? Oh no, I gotcha. It's like you know, it's not just inspired by the music itself, but like all but, the other things going around you because you're young and yeah, you got like social stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotcha. Well, and, and I mean, a lot of times these not these themes and these like you know different band themes come out of like pop culture, not just the music. You know, maybe they're trying to model themselves after some characters that they see in some media or have read or something like that. Well, and I think. At this point right now, it's all about just getting a hit, you know, something, some sort of hit out of the region, you know. And I think that, I think part of the problem is, is because garage bands didn't, you know, like make a ton of money. They had to get into the studio right away, one after another, because, you know, they had to get something out there. They had to get something out there. And so, you know, you can only write so much in a finite amount of time, right? Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, these albums become subpar. Yeah, exactly. And Which that, I'm not saying this album is by any stretch of the imagination. It's only a comparative thing, and it's just because that first album rocks so oh, fucking much. Oh, that first album's so good. But this brings me to my next dude. Check out the song. And, of course, we got Cinderella, He's Waiting, and Shot Down. And only Shot Down from this album would actually be a regional hit. It would, you know, peak at number 15. But, you know, it kind of impacted the area. Gave the area kind of an intense musical sound and it had an impact on all the other bands around them like all the other northwest bands including like the whalers the kingsmen's paul revere and the raiders dawn and the good times they started having like that harder edge sound yeah and it really did shape not only just the regional sound in the short term but it there's a high likelihood that this is a domino in the effects that come out with like grunge and things like that and the the later seattle sounds yeah because they follow the same kind of like I don't know, like themes, you know, the, right. the the very gritty and very. Yeah, it's it's definitely like a precursor to grunge for sure. Yeah. Well, and Dawn and the Good Times would even cover The Witch on their debut LP in 1965, which not as good. No. Nah. Pete Townsend from The Who. <laughs> yeah. Would actually gush about the Sonics to Barbara Walters while being interviewed on NBC's Today Show in 1966. <laughs> That's awesome. A San Jose band, the Syndicate of Sound, which is a fucking awesome name. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Released a cover version of The Witch. Not as good. Never. It, yeah, I, I just think that ba- that song is so fucking good. Yeah. It's so hard to make a better cover. Well, and then the Pennsylvania Swamp Rats would do a cover of Psycho. Also not as good. But, you know, it's good to see that not just local bands are covering their tunes and recognizing them, right? Yeah. Unfortunately... The British invasion fully swept over America, and everybody started paying attention to Britain. Oh, shit. Yep, and suddenly they're not cool. Yep, they're a lot less cool now. (laughs) Pat O'Day started producing events called Teen Fairs, which would later be Teen Spectaculars, and the Sonics wound up sharing the bills at the Seattle Coliseum with stars including the Kinks, the Beach Boys, Paul Revere and the Raiders, Mamas and the Papas, and the Birds. Holy shit, that's actually some big names. Yeah, I cut out some of the smaller ones because you gave me shit last time. For For such amazing names as the who, what, the what? (laughs) That's some good names, though. And so there were still hopes that they would break out of the Northwest. They would end up being flown to Cleveland, Ohio, to make a syndicated national television appearance on Don Webster's upbeat Teen Dance Show. Ooh, Teen Dance Show. Is that the name of it? Was Teen Dance Show? I think it was Upbeat. <laughs> Upbeat was the Upbeat name. Teen. Yeah, I oh. think that's what it was. Those are the worst names. I know. 60s TV had the worst fucking names. And another chance came when San Francisco's dominant hate making DJ, Tom Donahue, offered to support the band. On the condition that etiquette fly them down to headline a big concert at the Cow Palace, <laughs> which 
is a ridiculous place but to I, play. But I've actually heard of the Cow Palace before. <laughs> I, I think it's a pretty, like, big yeah, venue. I know, but it's just a ridiculously it awesome a, name. Yeah, it is, a, it is a ridiculous name. But I'm pretty sure that's a, that's a pretty, I don't know. But the label declined to pony up the dough, and they didn't go. <sighs> Opportunity missed. Yep. Fuck you guys. Could have been at the Cow Palace. They even had offers from both Columbia Records and RCA, but Etiquette wasn't interested in licensing away their hottest band. Yeah, it's probably a smart idea not to do. For them, maybe, not for the band. Yeah, that's actually a good point. It would have... Uh, it- because yeah, RCA, RCA would have yeah yeah they would have made sure that they got that. the fucking radio play that they needed to become a ba- like a big national band. That's actually a good point. I bet you uh, their their record company probably really just stifled their uh, yep. whole career path right there. That was their money. They were the money maker for the label, and so of course they were not happy with etiquette, and they would leave in 1966 and sign a deal with the Kingsman producer Jerry Denon and his Seattle-based Jordan Records. Well, they didn't just go for RCA. Like, RCA would have wanted them, though. I don't understand that. It also could be that they didn't know about that offer. That's actually a good point, too. And, I mean, local stuff, I get if they're trying to stay local, too. I don't know if it was that. I just think that... They missed a bunch of opportunities because the record label was afraid to lose them. That really sucks, too, because that means they could have really had so much more of a kick up. Yep. And this era is when some superstars start emerging, so. Well, right. And so they would end up getting booked into one of the West Coast's top recording facilities, Los Angeles' fabled Gold Star Studios. Oh, yeah. I've actually heard of that. Unfortunately, the album they produced was subpar at best, like, there's not a whole lot of songs that are good uh, on it. Like, the only two you could probably say that are good are You've Got Your Head on Backwards and High Time. So, I mean, like, let's think about this objectively. Of course, in a, a garage bo- rock band gets worse the more the better the studio is, though. That makes sense, right? Yeah, I just think with how quick everything was, they ran out of ideas, and they were just because they felt like they should have already been making money off their tunes which would have probably allowed them a little bit more time to think about the songs they were making yeah no exactly and the expectation of fame will really fuck your perspective up really bad and so we got another dude check out the song you've got your head on backwards in high time they're great jams they're they are seriously good jams they're good they're definitely cleaner than their other stuff which took me a little bit to actually get into the songs because of that and yeah. that might also be another reason why the album's so far because it's a little cleaner yeah, well, it, it doesn't match their sound the way it did previously, I don't think. Right, and we've got a great example of that with our band that we're going to be doing next week, too. Hell yeah. And then the band would do one final recording, a single, a psychedelic cover of Frank Zappa called Any Way the Wind Blows. Zappa's another guy we got coming later this season. <laughs> he is. Yeah, I'm, I was really excited when the beep, boop, boop machine spit him out on the final part. <laughs> I was like, yes! The beep, boop, boop machine is us. Oh, my God. They're giving it away, Ian. It's a secret. <laughs> We're the geniuses behind it. They think it's an actual machine, Ian. You have ruined all oh, sorry, of their immersion. Delete, 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 delete. <laughs> I'm edit this whole part out, you bastard. They're not going to They're gonna th- realize it's not magic. This is just a regular <laughs> podcast. <laughs> and... You know, honestly, this song's pretty interesting because it's way different than any other uh, Sonic song, and it is a a psychedelic song, which they never did. That is very weird. I mean, it's not bad, but it's just... It's not When you're like the Sonics, you're just like, what is going on here? It does sound like they probably weren't as interested in their own style, like, or at least long-term interested, you know what I mean? Like, because that happens. It does. I think they were looking for a hit by this point. Yeah, and so they might have been shifting their own values too much and t- giving away their own identity, which is what, like, actually keeps you going long-term if you retain your identity. Well, and here's the thing. They were limping along, and the threat of the Vietnam War's military draft would cause several of them to just return to college and attempt to escape the service. Oh, shit. So, you know, I mean, that's another thing you got to think about where it's just like things aren't going right. Oh, and we might get drafted unless we're in college. Let's get the fuck out yeah, of here. Yeah, let's not, let's not be <laughs> rock and roll badasses anymore. Let's enroll in college and be good boys. 
And so Bennett would end up splitting in order to join a popular band in the area called Merle Rush and the Turnabouts. Rosley would end up getting married and he was distracted, moody, and one night he up and quit, abandoning his gear on the spot. Oh my God, his gear? <laughs> yeah, like like his keyboards and everything, just like, I'm done, I'm fucking done, guys. Fuck you. Oh, wow, that's fucking insane, man. And their saxophone player? Yeah. Ended up as a fighter pilot in Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't join the military or the college fast enough, huh, buddy? Well, he's got fighter pilot, well, that's at least kind of cool. And I, I can't confer, uh, confirm this, but apparently he was already an experienced pilot who would fly the band to gigs around the region. So, like, maybe he'd get over, like, Spokane or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's and, awesome. And so he joined the Navy, which would allow him to finish college before his deployment. Oh, shit. So, you know, I mean, free college, fucking getting to fly fighter pilots. I it's mean, better than going <laughs> to the jungles of Vietnam as a trooper. <laughs> it's better than being a has-been band, too, or a band yeah. that's still trying. Hell, yeah. Larry and Andy would try and add other band members, but it just didn't work out. And by the 70s, the Sonics were done. Aw. At least they didn't have, like, a long, drawn-out death. That's always the worst for yeah. bands that I love, where it's like they flounder for, like, two decades. I just don't think they could have afforded to flounder for two decades. No, it sounds like they kind of made the practical decision. And in this case, it's probably the best one, even though I usually lean towards the artistic over the practical. Right, well... Andy would become an arts instructor at Seattle's Wilson Middle School. He would later teach English at Cleveland High. Larry ended up becoming an, <laughs> Larry ended up getting hired at an insurance firm. <laughs> and Lind, after you know his stint in the military, became a commercial pilot. Rosley worked in the asphalt industry, which I just assume means he poured concrete. So damn, is, he, so he, they just all turned out to be regular ass dudes. Regular ass dudes. That's fucking awesome. That, yeah. that that's actually the coolest ending for any band I think we've had in our <laughs> whole thing. Because it's always something fucked up. Like Who fucking it, said ending. We ain't oh, done yet. Oh my god! Excuse me. I'm sorry. I know. It's jeez. Well, now I'm curious. I thought you gave everybody got jobs. I thought we were done. Well, I mean, that's the ending for now, I guess. And so they'd all kind of like. Still playing music in, like, taverns and stuff, you know, when they weren't doing the regular gig. You know, like what we do now. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. But over time, people would start discovering their records, and they would start gaining stature to a whole new audience. All across America and Europe, you know, their albums were starting to get rediscovered, right? Right. In 1973, the Sonics recordings that were out of print since about 1968 were first reissued as Buckshot Records' Explosive LP. In 1975, The Witch would be reissued as a single. In 1977, some of the band's collections of songs would be released as an album called Original Northwest Punk LP. Oh, shit. Yeah, and then like bands from like New York, like The Cramps and The Vipers. I know you've heard of The Cramps. Oh, yeah. And Boston's DMZ were covering various Sonics classics, so they were starting to get... You know, people listening to him. Yeah, like a whole resurgence. The song Boss Haas would be featured in the 1983 West German indie film Hanging Out. <laughs> I've never seen it. I just, well, it's a 1983 West German indie film, so yeah. I don't think anybody's seen yeah. it outside of Germany. <laughs> if you've seen it, uh, I guess, let yeah. us know. <laughs> Hit us up. And then by the middle of the 1980s, Etiquette was revived to market a string of Sonics and Whalers songs to a new generation of fans. You know, the demand was out there. 1987, the first Sonics LP would be issued on CD. I almost said compact disc. <laughs> <laughs> In 1988, the band's albums were being reissued all over Europe. Hell yeah. And so, you know, there's this simmering activity that would bring just tons of offers to the Sonics to reunite for a lot of money in, like, England, Germany, France. And the word was most members were intrigued, but they just couldn't get Rosley to agree and join. And thus, it looked like the Sonics would never appear on stage again. Aww. 1990, Seattle's Pop Llama Records, which I'm pretty sure that's how it's pronounced because it's P-O-P-L-L-A-M-A. So Pop Llama, which I think is actually a pretty good name for yeah, a record label. It's a pretty cool name. I like that. 
they would release Here Ain't the Sonics, a tribute album, which would feature a bunch of like lesser known grunge bands, bands like The Mono Men, Screaming Trees, Young Fresh Fellows, Kings of Rock, Girl Trouble. So I only actually know one of the names on that list. Yeah, but the obvious one. Yeah, Screaming Trees. Yep. And in 1998, the Sonic song The Hustler would even be sampled on Snow Pony's techno disc, The Slow Motion World of Snow Pony. I have no idea what the fuck that is. I, I don't either, but how cool is that they got sampled by a, pony. by a techno DJ? <laughs> it's pretty cool. I mean, it's it, it would be a good sample bait. You know, they'd have tribute bands like in 2000, a band called the Strict Nines, which would actually have members from like Mud Honey and some other people from the, grunt, the Seattle grunge scene. Oh, wow. And they would even cut a record under the, under the name The New Original Sonic Sound. <laughs> That's pretty cool. The tipping point came in 2004, though, when the Land Rover Company licensed the Sonics Have Love Will Travel for use in television commercial. Hell yeah. <laughs> suddenly it's like, oh, we can make money off this. Yeah, suddenly we care again. <laughs> it's a, it, I mean, it's a great song, Have Love Will Travel, but it's an even better car commercial song. That is a great car commercial song. Yeah, it is a legendary. <laughs> good It was made car for a car song. commercial. <laughs> and... In November 2nd and 4th, 2007, they would headline at New York's Cave Stomp Festival. And this started the band touring London, Spain, Belgium, Seattle, you know, actually at the Paramount Theater, which is a, a pretty big. It's a big venue. It's a big venue to play. That's where like the Stones and shit plays. So, yeah. And they would actually play there on Halloween night in 2008. So now they're fucking touring again. That's awesome. And, you know, they're still touring to this day. I mean, not right now, obviously, because of COVID. But they're still active even now in, in yeah. this year. Yeah. They have member changes and stuff as some guys get old and don't want to do it anymore. Because, you know, they're all, like, in their 70s and shit. So Yeah, if we get the chance, we should go see them one last time if we get it. That would be awesome. Yeah. I actually I hear their new drummer's a pretty fucking killer drummer. Hell, yeah. I mean, I'll put them on a little list here and see if we can't keep an eye out for any live shows once this whole... Uh, pandemic stuff finally goes away yeah it'll be nice to be able to get out and see a show. ironically we start this podcast when you can't go out and actually see bands play right yep so th <laughs> i mean it worked out for us we got more time to end up doing it and all that so it did that really fuck up it that fucked up the interview true. series though it, it did it fucked the interview series all up mad room's the only one who ended up getting in here before everything turned it into a you know just, yeah just everybody fearing that they're gonna get sick I don't know. We want people to not die, but we also want some people to come interview with us. Come on now. Yep. So everybody be responsible for a short amount of time so that we can all be back yeah. to normal. Please. Yeah. Just sit in your apartment for two weeks and come interview with us for no money. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not selling anybody. God damn it. It'll be fun, though. And before we get to our last thoughts on this band, you know, we do need to talk about the influence because... They never had, like, a national hit. So, obviously, we're talking about them for a reason, right? Yeah. Sonics are often cited as contenders for the title of the first punk band. That makes sense, though. They're, they're considered proto-punk, which our band that we talk about next week, MC5, is also considered proto-punk. And also, you know, contenders for the first punk band. Yeah, that's why we kind of lump, lumped them together, because not only are they, like, kind of similar in their... Like, what they're titled with, they're actually very different bands and very different vibes, too. Oh, way different. But, I mean, that in and of itself, just being, being considered, is a pretty big deal. Considering how big the punk would get in the 70s. Yeah. I mean, just considering how, punk, how big punk is in general. Right. Well, a little less so big now. But, you know, I mean, considering how big of a dent it put on the music industry itself, you know, it, it really did change the way music sounded. Absolutely. You know, and we mentioned the Cramps before, who are obviously influenced, but it also influenced the Dead Boys. If I don't know if you know who they are. but nah, I've never listened to They them. were a big punk band back in my younger days. You know, obviously all the grunge bands. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, like... Grunge is very attached to that early punk. As we mentioned before, there's members of Mudhoney who, you know, played in a Sonics tribute band. Kurt Cobain would even say in an interview, I have to admit, the Sonics recorded very, very cheaply on a two-track, you know? 
and they just used one microphone over the drums and they got the most amazing drum sound I have ever heard. <laughs> Still to this day, it's my favorite drum sound. It sounds like he's hitting harder than anyone I've ever known. <laughs> yeah, they probably had it like turned all the way up. Right. Just Well, it was red light and everything too. Yeah, exactly. Well, they were considered a loud band, so they probably had everything cranked, so he had to play hard. Yep. The White Stripes named the Sonics as one of the bands that influenced them the most. That makes some sense. Calling them the epitome of 60s punk, claiming they were harder than the Kinks and punk long before punk. Oh, shit. And Nicholas Arson of the Hives cite the Sonics version of Have Love Will Travel as a favorite. Hell yeah. It, it is worth being a favorite. That fucking, that song is amazing. I mean, which may be slightly better, but. Well, and. That's arguable. That's, that's the other song by the Sonics that I covered in in one of my old bands. So I actually covered that song, Have Love Will Travel. And that's a great fucking song, it, honestly. Fantastic. And so, you know, it's it's about time for Last Thoughts. I just figured we had to get at least some influence oh, no, and absolutely. reason why we were talking about Because I didn't want it to feel like we were just gushing over a local band. Yeah, even though we were. Even though we were. And honestly, like... <laughs> We come into my last thoughts here, and I'm, I'll, I'll just go ahead and go first because I'm going to go ahead and say I don't have a whole lot of, like, typically it's like, you know, a, a, like a mentality that it needs adjusting or some sort of thing that I didn't like, but the Sonics are just damn classy, man. They, like, they start out, they make a couple albums, and they're all like, oh, no problem. We're all going to be adults now and, like, go have our own jobs. and then Or kill people in Vietnam yeah, from or, a fighter jet. Yeah, well, that's a still a normal job regardless <laughs> of the, the fighter jetting. <laughs> I, I guess <laughs> but like they they go through all that and then they go through their old band life and then finally in the 2000s they're like you know what we're gonna do we're gonna fucking rock again <laughs> i know right like they've they had to be like in their late 50s early 60s by that point that is, it is really impressive and honestly like i have nothing negative to say about it so all i'm gonna say is the Sonics are not the only band that fit in this category where they're like a regional band that is really, really good and doesn't get enough love. If you guys have another regional band that you feel like this and maybe us in the Northwest have never heard of, will you hit us up with it? Because uh, I'm all about this right now, and I would love to look into some stuff that's uh, you know not as nationally recognized. And we may have heard of the Sonics specifically because of our region. Maybe there's a band that we've never heard of because of our region. You know, So do that, Ian. Well, my last thoughts on this are, you know what? Just play some fucking music because you never know what will happen. And maybe in 30 years after you're done recording and got a couple of kids, you got an opportunity to play live again in front of thousands of fans who are screaming for you of all ages. Yeah. I mean, keep records of your stuff. Make sure you get it recorded. Yeah. I mean, who knows what trends will be, you know, in 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. And maybe the shit you did when you were 21 is going to make it big and influence a bunch of other bands and cause you to have to play in front of them again, in front of, you know, a ton of people who want to actually hear your stuff. You yeah. know, never give up hope. Yeah, no, I mean, we kind of fell through that. I think a lot of our best recordings and best, like, sessions are, are long gone to the uh, the history of time. Oh, yeah, lost to the wayside. So, you know, maybe don't do that. If you if you like your, uh, your music, make sure you keep it, like, uh, I don't know, collected. Record it. Keep it for later. Well, I mean, it, regardless of what you record and how much you save of it, if you really want to be a real rock star, the best way to do it is to uh, give us, like, five-star ratings on social media things. Only true rock stars do that. Yep, and tell your friends about us. Uh, we're, we're getting listens all across the world now, and it's really fucking cool. Like, uh, we're getting uh, listens all across Europe and Asia and places that I never thought would actually be listened to our podcast. So if you're in some strange place in the world, listen to us. Thank you all for the time you spend with us, and thanks for listening have a good night we love you